So I just did it totally out of convenience, but it changed my life. It became my calling. I didn't, life had to happen for me to know that this is what I was meant to do. Interesting how that works. I'll have what she's having. Welcome to another edition of Digital Confidence Podcast. Okay, I, everything looks good so far. Welcome back to the show. She talks confidence, and my special guest today is Lisa Greenberg. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Hey, very happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And we- Lisa is a speaker, and she's an advocate and a highly regarded criminal defense lawyer. She's successfully defended and won some of the most high-profile cases in the coastal bend. Coastal bend meaning what? Texas, and because you're in Texas. Yeah, South Texas, along the coast in South Texas. Okay. Lisa frequently speaks to audiences of hundreds of lawyers on how to effectively defend criminal charges, such as domestic violence, sexual assault, and murder. Her passion is to help women how to use their unique power and emotion in the courtroom to tell the client's story. She's co-founder and chair of the Nueces County Mental Health Public Defender's Office. And we really need to, to talk about that part. I think that's a fascinating thing that you're doing with the Public Defender's Office. To tee it up, your dad was a lawyer. He literally brought you up in the courtroom. Is that right? That's right. So my dad was a single dad. And he had four girls. And I think it gave me a unique perspective because my dad was tough. My dad was army. And then he was a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor. So we were raised, if we had some feelings, he would say, run a lap, do some mm-hmm. push-ups. He did the best he could with these four very opinionated, outspoken girls. But mm-hmm. since he was by himself, if we had a day off school, we would have to go to work with him. And he worked in the federal courthouse. And I think we terrorized that place. I remember messing with the poor bailiffs and running around and peeking in courtrooms <laughs> and bothering judges, those kind of things. So I grew up in it without knowing that wasn't how other people were growing up. It's such a unique perspective on things. So that got you interested in law. You went through the process, got out of law school and went into, and you were doing some work in the prosecutor's office, I think. Then you decided to switch over and work more on the defendant's side. In that process, your realization, your epiphany when it came to your own confidence in working with this very diverse set of people? Absolutely. First of all, I want to say, to be perfectly honest, I never wanted to be a lawyer because my family was lawyers. So the first thing I said was no law school, no law school. But I think growing up up in it, we had to advocate for everything we wanted. So I think it comes naturally to us. We just grew up that way. And I think it's in your blood. And so I went to college saying no law, but I found myself really attracted to political science. And then I changed my major to that. And I would get really into fairness and justice. And when I went to law school, I said, okay, I'll go to law school, but no criminal law and no family law. I remember Mm -hmm. saying that. Mm -hmm. And of course I loved criminal law. It just, I was invested in the cases we'd study. And I remember being like upset by some outcomes and so I got out of law school and I had a bunch of loans. And so immediately where I'm from, El Paso, they offered me a job probably because my dad was a prosecutor in El Paso and he was a federal prosecutor, but it was the DA's office and they thought I would be a lot like my dad, I'm sure. And so I got put on the domestic violence unit, which at that time, this is 2004, 
I was waiting on my bar results and the legislation had changed to focus on domestic violence. So this was new and it was very interesting. I'm proud of my work I did there, but I saw one side of the story. And of course I was unmarried and I had no kids at this time. I was probably 26 years old and I thought I knew everything. So I would come in and read the case and think, oh, this is so bad. I judged it on the paper I read, on the police report I read, and I would go forward from there. Hmm. And then life happened. And I love to say that to people because then I got married and my husband was in the army and he deployed to Iraq Hmm. and I was still in El Paso at the DA's office. And when he returned home, we went to Washington state to Fort Lewis. He was transferred and I was pregnant. I had my first child and then right away I had my second child and we moved a couple places and then we ended up in Corpus Christi, Texas. I thought that I would go back to being a DA, but I had these two young kids. And so I decided to start taking court appointments to try to, number one, pay for preschool, which was so expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, not have to work to put them in daycare after school and pick them up. So I decided I'm going to try this this court-appointed work. I'm going to try defense. Is it because defense, is it because that was easier to work around the schedule? Could you not work around the schedule from a prosecution? Is that more of a, what, eight to five or something type of thing? It is. That's the whole reason I started oh. defense. I just thought oh, I could be, okay. I could pick my kids up at 2.30 or 3 or whenever. I can't remember when preschool ended. Hmm. But I didn't want to work to put them in preschool and then aftercare. So I just did it totally out of convenience. But it changed my life. It became my calling. I didn't. Life had to happen for me to know that this is what I was meant to do. Interesting how that works. Yeah. So I got my first appointed case and I went in the jail for the first time. And I'd never, a lot of lawyers get to say they've been arrested and it gives them some street cred and they get to identify. (laughs) I have been there. Fortunately and unfortunately, I've never been arrested. I'm going to knock on wood. And so it was a new experience for me to go in the jail. And to meet a person who had been accused and was in jail and hear their story. And I can tell you that the first time I remember my first court appointed case, I met a woman and she told me her story and she had grown up poor and had all these children and what had mental health problems and became addicted to drugs, self-medicated. And she looked at me and she looked at me like I was somebody who should fix her life. And she handed her life to me and whatever I said to do, she would do. And I remember thinking, looking at her and thinking, why are you trusting me? Do you know me? I'm a mess of a human myself. I don't know what I'm doing. I could barely get my kids to preschool and can't get them to stay in bed at night, all the things and trusted me. And I remember thinking, what a responsibility, but it was the fact that she trusted me made me want to do a good job. It made me want to speak out for her. And she was so grateful that I listened to her and her story. And I remember thinking, I just need to tell her story. I I need to tell them what she's been through. I need to tell these prosecutors who judge her who I had been, who this person is. Her name is not the defendant. She has a name. She's a human. And so I started to get it there and realized what an awesome responsibility. And I better care about these people. Because you went in there and you had the ability to empathize with them, plus the fact that being a mom, because being a mom, it it totally shifts your perspective as well. 
when you learn about somebody's story like you just spoke about, mm-hmm. it, it becomes about somebody else. You're sometimes when you hit your roadblocks or when you have confidence issues, like we had spoken previously about this before. And then all of a sudden, when you're in a situation to where you need to show up for somebody else, that's a big thing, isn't it? And that's, and you had that experience. Absolutely. I don't know if innately I have a mama bear quality that I didn't know about until I became a mama bear, but Mm -hmm. There is something in me that wants to protect somebody who trusts me, who when the whole world is against you, I've always felt it is my calling to stand up for somebody without a voice. You know, I remember being as a child, sticking up for people who were maybe the underdog, the David and Goliath story I always identified with, but it wasn't really developed until somebody trusted me and it was my job to be their voice. And that was my sole purpose. And I think it took, I had told you a little bit before when I got out of law school, I remember there being so many mixed messages about women in law. I remember learning you had to wear like a gray or blue or black suit and your skirt had to be, if you wear a skirt past your knees and you don't want to look too done up and you don't want to look, you want to be pleasing, but not too attractive. Are these like unwritten rules or in our, and are there same rules for or like a checklist for guys? I would think no, but I'm just asking. I don't think I've ever heard of there being one for guys, but our whole purpose, especially as trial lawyers, is what are these 12 people in the jury going to think of you? Uh And at the time I graduated law school, which was 2004, there were a lot of lawyers that were female, but the message was, don't let it be about you. Don't distract with your face, your body, your clothes. And I remember that being really pressed upon us as we are just, we need to look very professional. I don't remember men necessarily getting that message, but we needed to look like we were going to be taken seriously. And I remember in the DA's office, people saying, put your hair in a ponytail. I remember being scared that if my nails were a color, that would be distracting. Don't wear earrings, like these hoops, wear little Mm -hmm. studs. I remember people telling me that. And so... There was a message to me without me realizing it at that time to be average, Mm -hmm. just be mediocre. Don't be too much of one thing. Don't be too emotional. Be very, but don't be not emotional enough. Uh, Make sure you're logical. Wow. That's a walking on eggshell situation. Seems it was, but I didn't know it until Mm. I changed. And so when I started to represent other people, I was very emotional about it. I want to say that because if somebody handed their life to me, I cared about them, especially if I'm the only person who has heard their story and I'm all they have in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Many times when somebody is poor or indigent or doesn't have a family that can take off work and be in the courtroom with them or people in their corner, you are it. Mm. And that responsibility makes me emotional. I can't hide that away, but I tried. In the beginning of my legal career, I really tried. And for me, it made me, when I finally let go, that's when I started to become effective and began winning my cases was when people could see that I was genuine and caring and how I felt. That's fascinating. That's using your superpower, which is your emotions, your connection to your emotions, your intuition, your level of empathy, 
all the things that that initially they were they they meaning whatever the, the whatever were trying to keep down or keep out of the, the logical rational linear approach to doing what you're doing but then when you just it, if i heard you correctly in in letting go of that and i'd like to hear like how you let go of that specifically but when you did that became like the thing right that would became like the piece of the puzzle that created the level of success that you now have? I think law school teaches you to lose your humanity. It's like mm. we, we kept being taught this system called IRAC. What's the issue? I, what's the rule for the R? Apply it for the A and conclusion C. Don't think, don't feel, give me those four things. Mm. But when you get out of law school, I think you become so when people would talk to me, you become a bad listener because you're like, what's the issue? What's the, here's the rule. I, I find myself sometimes still doing that with my kids. Let's move it along. What's the issue? <laughs> so I can right. yeah. And I tried to be that way for a long time. And so I was okay, mediocre and I did okay. But when I let go of all of that and became the human in the courtroom who I really was, and it wasn't that I told myself, be the human. It just happened because who I am, I find myself, and I don't know if you're like this or other people, but like I talk with my hands. I remember them telling me in high school, I mean, in law school, put your hands down. And I don't know how I would sit on my hands. And I remember a judge saying that I make faces. <laughs> really? I, to, mm -hmm. I would really try to, I smile a lot. Oh, and I, or I have a, an emotional, I'm emotion. I show it in my body. Mm -hmm. And finally, I told the jury, and I do it with every case now, I say, I've been told that I make faces when I feel something, that I emote a lot or I use my hands. And the reason I say that now, it's a little trick I have, is that they'll watch me because I've owned it. And I say, please don't hold that against my client. I try not to do it. But they'll know if I think someone's lying because I'll make a face like. And they know wow. they're looking for Or if I think something's really important, they're looking. So I owned it. That's a brilliant, that's a brilliant move because you, you, oh my God, you gave them a cheat sheet. You don't even, so all of your nonverbal communication, you just told them exactly what you do. And then you, now you don't have to say anything and you don't, it does, there doesn't have to be any issues in the courtroom. And all they have to do is look over unless, unless a judge sees you doing a massive eye roll or something and they would have an issue with that. Polite, but this is always happening anyway. Right. So I use it now to my advantage. But what, when I really cared about the person next to me and I was really upset about the situation they were in, the jury would care because they would see that I cared. And I feel one of the things I strongly believe is if you don't care, why should the jury, why should anybody else care? Yeah. So I've learned to own it, own that. And, and how, do you feel, how do you feel your inner confidence has been since that epiphany moment. And it, it seems like that really released you to being who you are and it validates who you are and you can just roll with that and you're getting, you're getting positive results from that. It took me a bit. I remember getting some cases. I didn't feel I had like imposter syndrome when I started and I had a mentor. I remember I got my first murder case and I had a young very young African-American male that had mental health issues. And I did not feel like I was good enough to represent him. I kept thinking, 
I can't handle this. If I lose, he's going to go to prison for this long. And I cannot, I kept saying, I can't handle this. I need help. And I told my mentor, his name is Jimmy Granberry. And he said, Hey, Lisa, get the F. He used that word, get the F over yourself. It's mm-hmm. not about. And ever since that day, I had to say, get over yourself. It isn't about you. And that released me, I think, from a lot of the help. It was my marching orders. And so that's a a perfect affirmation, isn't it? It really (laughs) is. That's a perfect sticky note on the mirror in the morning to set yourself up for for anybody, right? To set yourself up for just being in the right mindset going forward. I, to this day... I go and I tell this to juries too, before a case, no matter what it is, I've tried every kind of case. Now I go in the bathroom at the courthouse in the public restroom and I go, I just sit by the mirror and I say, please God, let me get over myself. <laughs> let me get over myself. And then I march back in, I roll my shoulders back and I walk back in. Right. You just move on, boogie forward. What a great, and usually at the end of the show, it's the call to action, right? It's the whole, the, the one little nugget of information or the kind of the cool little thing that, that you do, or you can share with people. I think you just did just now. I think it's, I think that's an amazing affirmation. It's get out of your own way. There's so many things to unravel here. And cause I want to save a couple minutes at the end to talk about your mental health, the public defender, mental health department, which I think is an amazing thing you're doing. The get over yourself, it's not about you, is incredible, along with the one big epiphany that you had, which was leaning into your superpowers and not conforming to the stringent environment that was set up. And that could be a metaphor for so many women in so many careers or just life situations. It's incredible. The two things that popped out to me what that were like changing that shifted the thing was the listening part that that you, when you shifted from going through having those mental things and not being a good listener because you're always trying to think about the next thing to say type of thing which happens in a very linear environment a very rational environment it's the active listening it's being a good listener and then also tapping into your emotions because they are an asset they are you can there's a thing called emotional IQ which means that you use your emotions instead of them using you because they can be insanely powerful. And that's the one thing that a lot of my clients come in, that my, my women clients come in and they talk about all sorts of things and relationships and this and that. And sadly, a lot of the times they have a very wrong impression of their emotions and they talk about them being too emotional and this and that. I said, I don't think that's, too emotional at all. You're, you have a gauge on what's going on and you're just validating what the situation is to you. In taking that and moving forward, you have been a part of a lot of different boards, a lot of different associations. And then you decided to, because of this experience, decided to create this mental health public defender's office, which was something that's new, right? We did not have a public defender's office in my county. And there's a lot of criticism of public defender's office in different counties. But what we did have was lawyers who would take court appointed cases and some were educated on mental health and some were not. And we had many cases that were mental health cases where people would self-medicate or they were in a state of crisis. And instead of going to a mental health facility, they were arrested. They were warehoused in a jail. And a lot of times with mental illness, we expect the jail to take care of people Mm -hmm. where they're not equipped to. The sheriff's officers are 
they don't have mental health backgrounds. They don't know why somebody's acting out. They don't know they're in crisis. We have this whole problem where we're warehousing people that are in need of help. Instead of getting treatment, they're getting punished. And then we, they're not able to make decisions for themselves. And I always say a lot of times we just convict them, put it on their tab. You're not solving the problem of mental health or mental illness there. And so it was frustrating. It was frustrating to watch. I had always wondered why we didn't have a mental health public defender's office. And I had pushed for it and was told that's not going to happen here. That's not going to happen. A few years later, I had a big mental health case here. I'm just going to give you a very brief scenario. But I had a client who was schizophrenic, had gone to his mother, who was a social worker, had called the police, asked for help, asked for commitments, asked for everything she possibly could, was not given it. And he eventually decompensated and he actually killed his father and burned his house down. So it was a horribly sad case, huge case. I was actually able to get him a not guilty reason of insanity by tracing back his mental health history. Mm -hmm. The reason I tell you that it was big in the news and everybody kept saying, what is the problem here with mental health? And his mother kept advocating and saying, there's this problem. I did everything I was supposed to. I called for help, but because he was 18, I couldn't make him go get help. All these problems. So together, we got with a judge during COVID. There was some funds available, and we were able to start the Mental Health Public Defender's Office for Noasis County. There was some pushback, but it, the timing was right, too, with COVID and a focus on mental health and these funds available. And the Texas Indigent Defense Commission helped sponsor it. So there were all the stars aligned. We were able to start it. And what this is supposed to be is educated lawyers on mental health that can really look at the cases and not just get somebody a conviction and out of jail without any help. They're really looking at treatment options. They have social workers in the office. They are trained to deal with these cases where other people aren't. We have chosen a public defender who is brilliant and couldn't say enough good things about her. And so I'm oversight, I'm oversight of that and helping form it and watching it grow. It just started taking its first cases in Oasis County. So I'm very excited about it. It's, I always say to people, if, you know, this is my baby, I've been pushing for this. So I can't wait to watch it succeed and help people. That's fantastic. Really do you think that something like this, as it goes on and becomes more effective and expands a little bit, do you think it can be used as a pilot program to be used in different public defenders offices around the country? I so hope so, because I think that not only can they teach other lawyers, let's say just a regular lawyer that doesn't have a mental health background, they can help teach the police. They're going to work hand in hand with the police on this is a mental health crisis. There are these places available. Do not just throw this person in jail. Mm -hmm. They can also be a resource for families that don't have other options. They have a place to turn to. We have a mental health crisis in this country. And I know that's no surprise to people, but it often leads to things like self-medication, drug abuse cases, or acting out assault cases. You can't just put a Band-Aid on it. You have to treat the problem. And so I'm hoping that this holistic view can catch on and we look at the problem and try to treat it instead of just throw people away that have mental health issues. What a fantastic approach to things. And I hope good luck to the whole thing. And hopefully that expands and gets going. It sounds like an amazing thing. Being on the mental health side of things, it's, it is a incredibly huge crisis. And I'm, to be honest, shocked that that's this layer 
in the criminal justice system hasn't been there or is not there now. It's mind boggling to me because that's really the essence. You have to go in and do some discovery in regards to the mental health aspects of things in order to get things. Because you can take somebody, obviously take somebody that has a big mental health issue and prison or jail time isn't going to do anything except perhaps exacerbate the situation. So it's such a great angle to hit. And I hope all the best on that. Thank, Thank you, Lisa. You. I really appreciate you sharing those things that you shared. And remember, get over yourself. <laughs> it's <laughs> right. right. It's not about you. I love that. Not that is such a great like morning affirmation. It's fantastic. If you have any comments or questions for Lisa, I'm going to post her contact information and along with her bio in the show notes. Any other questions for me, you know how to get a hold of me. It's Tony at javabud.com or just comment on this on YouTube or any of the platforms that this is on. I hope things are good and I will talk to you next week. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Bye.